Hey everyone, welcome back. Good to see you. Um, we're here for our what is this, our sixth episode. This is number six. Yeah. Set, set over chapter seven. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who missed it, last time we did planning and the rule of law. Uh, this time uh, it's about Kevin, what's our what's our chapter about this time? It's planning chapter and is, economics. It's economic control and totalitarianism. Chapter seven. There you go. Economic control and totalitarianism. Yeah, we're <clears throat> believe it or not, folks. Uh, I'm actually more awake now than uh, I was last night when Kevin and I started. We were gonna, we were going to record last night, and uh, we were going through the notes, <clears throat> and we just both were like getting more and more tired because <clears throat> it was like at the end of the night. Kevin's been sick. We prepped I've been for sick. three hours. <laughs> we're on for three hours and never recorded yeah. the thing. Right. And yeah, at the end, uh, I was like, hey, we should come up with some symbols to put above sections in the notes and uh, so we can know who's going to read what. And then we spent like 20 minutes looking at all the symbols in Google Docs. And uh, then <laughs> Kevin chose it as a, his symbol, a toilet. And I said, are you really going to pick a toilet? And he goes, are we really using symbols? And I'm like, okay, we're tired, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I think we hit a bit of a wall. So we're, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed or some version of it uh, this morning <clears throat> uh, slash afternoon, whatever. Uh, so here we are. Um, Kevin, you want to give a quick couple of bullet points over uh, the previous one, over Chapter 6? Yeah, sure. So Chapter 6, yeah, Chapter 6 went over planning and the rule of law. Um, and so it had a, really, a lot of really, really good points in there. Um, so And they kind of move over to here where this chapter really starts out. Uh, more in economics. These next two chapters, actually, chapter seven, chapter eight, they're both a lot in economics. We're actually going to combine them together, but there's so much material in both, uh, like usual, it's impossible to actually do that. So, um, so the first takeaway we really took from from chapter six is that there are rules that allow us to reasonably predict what each other, what what others will do, as long as we're all following the same set of rules. So to take this a quick excerpt from the chapter because he puts it here beautifully, quote. Rules which make it possible to foresee with fair certainty how the authority will use its coercive powers in given circumstances and plans plan one's individual affairs on the basis of this knowledge. It is the idea that you have to know the rules of the game before entering the game, or if you decide not to do that, or if you allow whomever is making the rules of the game to change them while you're already playing the game. Uh, there's no way you can reasonably predict what everyone else is going to do, which allows you to play the game with uh, any sort of strategy. So um, the the rule of law part here, obviously it's part of the, the title of the chapter, uh, extremely important if we all want to understand what we're going to be doing with each other. Um, next yep. bullet point, with a quality of opportunity, you will always cause inequality of outcome. To force a quality of outcome is to take away all opportunities. So this is the idea of, you know, the big talking point now is we want equity. Well, what does equity mean? Equity means equality of outcomes. Um, if you want equality of outcomes, there's no way you can say, you can give everyone else the equality of opportunity, which is what equality in our mind used to used to be. It's like, okay, we all have the same opportunities. We're not going to come up with the same outcomes. Uh, the population is large and diverse as you know the United States, much less the whole Western world. There's no possible no possibility that we're all going to see the same outcomes. And one of the 
talking points of the modern day planners, socialists, whatever you want to call them is, oh, look at all these disparate outcomes. That obviously means that there's something wrong with the opportunities. Well, no, it does not mean there's something wrong with the opportunities. And if you're going to fix those outcomes, now you have to change those opportunities according to whomever you want to bring up to the, the next group that you see uh, all those disparities with. So it's a very, very dangerous game to play. And then the next one, the last one we're going to talk about here is uh, he talks about the abuse of the word privilege. I don't know if you've ever heard of the word privilege or <laughs> seen it abused at all. You know, we have white privilege. It's just the, your, your skin tone allows, allows you this certain privilege. And that is not what the word privilege is meant to, to be used as. So he explains, you know, it's not a privilege if we can all acquire it under the same set of rules. Again, we go back to the first bullet point. If we can all have, we all work under the same rules, well, then there's no real privilege there because we should all be be able to operate kind of with these these same tools. Now, privilege can also mean, you know, you're born in a better circumstance, which we'll get to in this chapter a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's when you put in arbitrary rules, well, that's a real privilege. And that's what the socialist planners, you know, uh, wants to do. So, um, yeah, so it's not... This is not to say that, like I just said, that everyone begins the same place or acquires it with the same degree of ease or difficulty. What matters is that the rules of the game allow it, allow for those who are evenly, even incredibly behind from the starting place in life to advance from that point, uh, should they so desire. So it is, yep. it is you getting the tools, the ability of your own life to make it better uh, if we can all follow the same rules. And, and in that context, privilege does not necessarily apply, at least in the way it's abused today. Totally. And, you know, even just to piggyback on the second bullet point real fast, you know, the idea, you know, quality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, you know, it's one of those things where we, we see this and they even use, I think, didn't um, Johnson uh, use the, the example of the foot race, you know, you don't put a man, you know, at the race and, and whenever everyone else has been running for a while and say, you know, go and run it, you have to give him a head start. That was his justification for a lot of the great society programs mm -hmm. <clears throat> to try and create that equality of outcome but you know we do know that even even in that situation that doesn't mean that a person is going to stay behind because they might be a faster runner than someone who you know had a head start you know and so <clears throat> that's the point of having all the same rules is that even if people do have different starting places they can they still have the equal opportunity to advance themselves you know if you think about like a tryout um, for some type of, you know, I don't know if you, I, I actually, I know that you played sports in, in high school um, and then in college. So, I mean, whenever you're doing your football tryouts, especially at the very beginning, you know, they decide, are you going to be on the, when it's younger, I don't know if they do like A, B, and C leagues when, where you're at, but they decide which team you're going to be on based on how good you are. But just because you start out on the C team, because maybe you weren't very fast or you hadn't hit a growth spurt or whatever, doesn't mean you can't be on the A team by next year. You know, it's just a matter of, you know, does everyone have the same rules? And if you're forcing the same outcomes, um, then all that's going to do is push the, the quality and the standards lower, <clears throat> not raise everyone up to a higher yeah. place. And that also gets um, into the disparate outcome aspect of it. Like if you're bigger, yep. you're naturally faster. There's some gifts that you get that you're going to be naturally better at this <clears throat> one thing than other people. And that's what causes that disparate outcome. Um, so, and it's not just distilled to only biology it's distilled to culture there's a whole whole bunch of there's a thousand factors that go into what is going to determine your outcome and um just to say if it's just if you try to distill it to one thing like racism is what's causing disparities well, okay well now you're you're taking this very simple uh um, one variable analysis and you're going to make arbitrary rules on that analysis and that's when you know uh, authoritarianism comes yep. in 
<clears throat> yep, that's exactly right. Um, and so to kind of set up this chapter uh, for you all, you know, one of the things that <clears throat> we talked about, I believe, in the, maybe the last two episodes even, is that Hayek does a really brilliant job here of making a case, and he kind of layers this like an onion um, in terms of, you know, hey, gradually building the argument of here's the road we were on, here's where we're going down, and explaining some of the main tensions between <clears throat> socialism as an idea uh, in the minds of those who are advocating for it and the actual outcomes of these things. And <clears throat> one of the, the themes here um, is, the, is how the lack of consensus will create the necessity of coercion. And another way of conceptualizing coercion is to think about how like the planner is going to have to take control of more and more aspects of society in order to execute their plan. And so, you know, two chapters ago is about democracy and how that and planning are incompatible. Uh, last chapter was about the rule of law, like, you know, everyone operating, as Kevin mentioned, under the same rules of the game and having to abide by the same laws <clears throat> and so on and so forth. Um, and how the planner is going to have to take control of that. And this one is about the economic system. And so the, that's why it's called economic control and totalitarianism um, is because it's like in order to execute the plan, they have to have what is effectively a totalitarian um, grasp and di dictatorship is, is the words that Hayek uses of uh, the economic system. And as we'll get into in the chapter, there was a lot of people who thought that like the realm of economics was just this one little facet of life that didn't like, you know, it's like, oh, that's nothing, you know, that's, that's this tiny thing. And, and it doesn't relate to all these other things, but as we'll get into, and as Hayek explains, um, the, our economic system, you know, our exchange of goods and services um, and our, our actual labor into that system is, you know, the root of literally all other aspects of life and our ability to live our lives. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of the continuation of that theme. So if you guys are thinking about, if you've been watching this, which we appreciate and thinking about the themes of this book, um, the theme of this chapter continues that idea of how the planner, the planner is going to have to um, obtain more and more control of society <clears throat> until it's just a total control and it's a, a hence totalitarianism. And real fast, um, so there's two words that we tend to uh, define at the beginning of each of these um, because whenever we're using them and the way the Hayek uses them, it's going to be very different than the contemporary understanding of the word. So the first one is liberal. Uh, I don't know if liberal is used that much in this chapter, but it's still in case it is um, for, for you guys to again, understand what this means, whatever. We, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so when Hayek talks about liberalism being that this, thing that got us here in terms of a prosperous society he's talking about classical liberalism liberal in the sense of how it was used in you know europe and great britain at that at that time you know which for our context just think libertarian think freedom maybe even think conservative a little bit um it just means like letting people do what they want to do giving people freedom um you know that kind of thing being open-minded <clears throat> whatever and then the other term is planning and the and planner we'll use planner and planning a lot in this conversation. And so uh, in Hayek's time, people talked about, they called for planning. They called, we needed planners to plan society. And that's just another way of saying, having this top-down control over whatever it is, the thing that they want planning over. So in this case, it's having top-down control over economic system, as opposed to bottom-up, you know, you have these free exchanges that come about um, from people just having the freedom to do that. The example I've given before is like in the ocean, 
you know, no one is directing how the schools of fish are swimming by each other and like the ecosystem. If you look at the complexities of like a coral reef and stuff, you know, a planner would look at that and say, it's chaos. No one's telling them what to do. And it's like, yeah, but no one needs to tell them what to do. They're able to figure that out on their own. And so, but the planners want there to be this total uh, control by these benevolent, you know, wise, you know, uh, elite experts of society who, who know better than us. So whenever you think planner, think socialism, think like stifling bureaucracy, you know, um, think just total control, lack of freedom. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, Kevin, if I, if I missed anything there, um, go ahead and fill it in, but otherwise, you know, we can yeah. get started on that. Yeah. Add, a lot quote. Add, uh, you know, planning is you think coercive authority, you know, mm, in order yep, to plan, like you must be able, you must have the ability to, to coerce people to follow the plan. Obviously you can't mm -hmm. once if people are not going to end up following the plan, then, uh, you know, the whole plan's going to fall apart and you're going to either have to blame them uh, or they're, you know, going to oust you. But, um, yeah, I think you put it very succinctly and, and even the, you know, this chapter is titled economic control and totalitarianism, but it could be titled economic control leads to totalitarianism. Uh, yep. And I think that's why he pieced those together and, and throughout the chapter, you'll, you'll begin to understand that. Yep. Rock on. Um, all right. So do you want to move? Let's get into that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll give this quote that kind of tees it up here um, that <clears throat> lays the groundwork. So the control of the production of wealth is the control of human life itself. Hilaire Belloc. And so that's the idea. So, you know, here's kind of one of the main takeaways is that if someone, whenever he says production of wealth, that's the means of production. That's, you know, labor input. That's the economy. So the control of how people produce wealth, which is usually through labor or, you know, acquiring money to help them, you know, buy into property ownership, whatever. If, if someone controls that, that thin slice, uh, you know, thin slice or whatever of society, they actually control all of human life itself. And so this is where Hayek is trying to dispel this idea that you can have, you can separate the economic aspect of society from all of the rest of, of our lives. Uh, you, you just can't do that. So yeah. anyway, there you go. Yeah, so he starts with the chapter, um, bringing in some themes from previous chapters, as he often does, to kind of help us understand how these are all being related to each other. So uh, opening chapter, uh, quote, our economy is a complex system of interrelated activities. If it is to be consciously directed at all, it must be directed by a single staff of experts whose actions must not be fettered by democratic procedure. We've seen this theme in several chapters before. You know, I like to highlight whenever he puts in the experts there. That's another, you know, if if he were around today and were to do another revision of this book, I think he'd probably dedicate one whole chapter to the experts. Um, and yep. and so it might be a big picture of Dr. Fauci there, you know, some other white lab coat um, that mm -hmm. even if they have the best of intentions, that doesn't matter. They're single, singularly focused on this one thing. And by ignoring yep. all the other things, all the other externalities, uh, you can really drift into uh, totalitarianism rather quickly. Um, so always be aware of the experts when you hear someone say, listen, follow the experts. But uh, to continue, quote, one of the most prominent economic planners, Stuart Chase, assures us that in a planned society, political democracy can remain if it confines itself to all but economic matters. So he's talking about, you know, we can planners can control stuff if they just stay in this narrow scope of economic planning. Is that, you know, realistic? Yep. Probably not. So continue. Such assurance, assurances are usually accompanied by the suggestion that by giving up freedom in what are or ought to be the less important aspects of our lives, we shall obtain greater freedom in the pursuit of higher values. On this ground, people who abhor the idea of a political dictatorship often clamor for a dictatorship in the economic field. So 
I mean, he, they give it away right there. You know, once, once you say, all right, we, we, we don't want to think he, he goes a bit later about, you know, the higher values idea. It's like, why focus on these small little things like food, shelter, and clothing when you could think of these higher values? Right. Like, you know, it's like, they're important, you know, they're <clears throat> essential, but like, why should you worry about these little kind of mundane details? Um, so if you allow the planners to take control of the economy part of this, you know, the small little section of our, our lives called the economy, um, you know, why wouldn't this work? Why wouldn't they be able to just stay strictly in the economic sphere and not drift over into the social sphere? But then we got to ask ourselves, is this even possible to be separated? Yep. And I think when you dig, I mean, you don't have to dig very deep to start to understand. No, I know. I don't think it's possible. And I think it'd be unwise to give some large central authority all this powder, power just over economic matters. Yeah. And what's interesting about that quote is, you know, he says, um, political democracy can remain if it confines itself to all but economic matters, which sounds like a threat for starters, where it's like, we'll let you have your little democracy, you know, as long as you stay out of the economic matters, which of course, you know, the economic matters control all of the rest of it. So it doesn't really matter, but there is also this thing, and you'll see this language more and more throughout the chapter, um, where he talks about we'll obtain greater freedom in the pursuit of higher values and there's higher values and lesser values and, and things are more important. Things are less important. And the main issue, and a lot of this boils down to, it's like who decides what the higher value is and what the lesser value is. I mean, that's what we talked about with the lack of, of a big hierarchy of values um, for that all of society shares. You know, if we don't all agree on what is more important or less important, what's more valuable or less valuable, um, then it's going to be very difficult to obtain any kind of consensus whenever plans put in place. Because, you know, back to that, you know, the, the Neapolitan dilemma that, you know, we talked about a few episodes ago where it's like, even if your number one value is my number five value, those are probably going to overlap, you know, less than two or 3% of the time. Um, and so, and that's if they're even both of them in the top five. So, and, and so on and so forth. So it's just not possible, like you said. Um, and, and I think you have a good note here where it says planners claim to only manage the economy and stay out of social lives. Um, but this, can this be separated? You know, no, it would be unwise to believe so. And like um, one, one of the things I thought about um, was that example that we talked about last night with the cows, you know, do you think, you know, can, can we get into the cows for a minute yeah. here just to kind of tee up this chapter here? Talk about um, so, you know, uh, Thomas Sowell has this great, uh, uh, explanation of economics and that is in his book, you know, spoiler alert, basic economics, where he says that economics is fundamentally a system of rationing. Um, it's not a system of necessarily providing things, but it's about rationing things because the problem is, is you have an infinite, um, demand you know or ideas of how to use certain things and you have a limited amount of those things so you need to come up with a system that rations those uh goods or services in a way that only the people who like find them most valuable are the ones who get them and so the opposite so let's say we have planning and let's just take one just one thing okay so in the economy uh, and that would be cows so you know beef is a product um, leather is a product, all of whatever else they make out of, you know, cow hooves, you know, I don't know if they use that stuff to make glue still, or like they did with horses or if that was just a, uh, it's a, just their a, mascot a, now urban legend, but uh, anyway, well, you still have a cow yeah, in the front of the Elmer's. Right. Glue to, to, thing, to, so. It will exactly. 
I know that they use those for other things. So um, if the government were to control, you know, just, just the economy, and let's say they only control uh, cows and, and everything that had to do with cows. Well, now you're looking at they control all the, the sale barns, they control all the feedlots, they control the ranches, so, and they have to push everyone out who previously was a rancher. So now they're out of a job. Oh, well, but you're a rancher. You had, in some cases, literally millions of acres. Well, you don't need that anymore. So we're going to go ahead and take your land because we need that grazing land. Now the government is in control of where the cattle are going to graze, how they're going to get their water, all of these other things. What about getting their food brought in if they, if they have to buy hay from other farms? Well, we might as well seize control of the production of, of hay or whatever other thing. Well, we're going to, if, if we're going to butcher these cows, then now they're going to have to control the manufacturing plants, the, or the, you know, the plants where they do all that stuff uh, with the cows. And then, well, what, what are we going to do with the beef? Well, these hot dog vendors want it for ball games. Taco Bell wants it for, you know, whatever other thing. All the fat, think of all the places use cheese and beef, you know, for the myriad of things. You're looking at the entire food industry uh, in the country is now having to go through the government in order to do anything. What if I want to open a burger stand or, you know, burger place? I have to think about the government. Does the government think that we need another burger place or not? Right. What if I want to open a leather shop? Like I've got a friend who owns a leather shop that he started from the ground up. And now he, he went from going online. This is one of the places that actually opened during COVID here. Now he has a storefront. Um, this is what happens when you live in a state that doesn't, isn't run entirely by crazy people. Liz Cheney, uh, obviously not included in that statement, but um, like he was able to, what if now he has to go through the government to get his leather and what if the government says, no, 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 we don't want to sell you that because we want to use the leather over here for these boots or for these hats, you know? Okay. But then who's going to distribute it? Now we're going to have, now the government has to own the stores or, or at least they have a monopoly on the prices of leather to go to these other places. And so the point is, is that they get to decide what's the best use of beef. Do they get, do they have hot dogs, you know, at the, on the street in Chicago or at ball games anymore? Do we have beef tacos? Do we, you know, at these other places, like they control all, all the places with cheese, ice cream, you know, like all, all of this stuff, sour cream, like milk, everything just from them controlling cows. And that's not even getting into the, the supply lines of the, you know, the trucking and getting them to and from places like all of these things. And so if you were to just think of one thing in society, in the economic sphere, which is cows, if the government controlled that, it affects all of these other things. And as Kevin mentioned earlier about like how we have to have these rules that we all agree to that we kind of have a mutual understanding of so we can make plans for our lives and do things. Like my ability to open a restaurant, my ability to open a leather place, my ability to maybe, I guess I can't be a rancher now, you know, I can't, all of these other things is completely stifled. I can't buy, what if I want to buy land adjacent to where they're uh, grazing the government cattle and they're known for annexing the land that's adjacent to them if they want to expand their grazing capacity. So now I can't, you know, plan on doing anything there. I can't build any business around there either because they might want to annex it and tear it down just so cows can graze there. And so there's all these things that get totally screwed up whenever you have the control of just this one thing. And so then you extrapolate that out to everything else in the economy and you see how totalizing this is. And that's what Hayek is trying to dispel here where he's like, this is not some minor thing. This is literally everything. This is everything. And so whenever they say, you know, oh, hey, trust us with this one little thing. It's like they know damn well that it's not this one little thing. You know, this is this is every single thing. But this is how it gets and uh, opens the door to 
totalitarianism is by you know making that kind of ridiculous belief erroneous belief as as he says you know hayek references you know, he says uh th this is an erroneous belief that there are purely economic ends separate from the other ends of life it, it's just um it's just not the case i'll finish this this quote out here kevin and then we're gonna move on to the next part sure. um so he says the ultimate ends of activities of reasonable beings are never economic so that's the point here is that it's like if I'm going into being a rancher or whatever, like it's not, it's not just for like this economic end in and of itself, or if I'm trying to make money to buy something, it's not just to make the money itself, but it's to pursue the things that I want to pursue. Strictly speaking, there is no economic motive, but only economic factors conditioning our striving for other ends. What in ordinary language is misleadingly called economic motive merely means the desire for general opportunity, the desire for power to achieve unspecified ends. If we strive for money, it is because it offers us the widest choices, a choice in enjoying the fruits of our efforts. So again, the point is, is you can't separate economic freedom from freedom in these other aspects of life. It is through the pursuit of economic freedom and my own ends of making money and, and having these mutually beneficial arrangements with people that I can then like um, uh, pursue the other things that I want to do in life. The other thing Kevin and I talked about last night was, it's like, why is Richard Branson, why did he go to space? It's like, if this was all just purely economic, you know, then it'd just be Scrooge McDuck swimming around in a thing of money just because he likes it. But Richard Branson made a lot of money, so he has a lot of options available to him of what would make him happy. That's the point, is it's not the money in and of itself, but the money represents the ends, you know, the things that he wants. And people have more ambition, some people have less ambition. Um, and so they can choose what they want to do based on how much ambition they have based on their desires. But that's the point, is everyone has the freedom to choose. Um, and you can't give up your freedom in the economic space to make those choices um, without giving up your freedom in all of these other areas. And that, and that's, that's kind of the point here. Did I miss something, Kevin? Does that make no. sense? No. Um, so, you know, the little note I have down here is economics cannot be separated from individual freedom as a secondary concern. And this is kind of how they yeah. brandish, how they, they brand You're like, okay, we'll take over this. Cause it's not of major concern to your life. You want, you want leisurely time. Yeah. You want to lay out on the beach. You want to do all these things. Like why, why worry about economics? But the problem is that, that economics those economic concerns are directly linked to our ability to choose our own ends. You know, money is just a means to an end. You don't just, like you said, you don't just build Donald Duck money bins to go swimming around in. No, you use that capital on something else. So if we want more choice in a free market system, we must find ways to create more value for others. I mean, that's kind of the brilliant side of it. It's like, okay, if you're a rich person, that means most likely you had to develop something that's extremely useful for a whole bunch of other people that's helping society. Even though planners claim that socialism is the real thing that helps society because now we get to, as a central authority, dictate you know what makes society better. So if you want more choice under a planned society, you're just out of luck. There's just, unless yep. you try to get power, political power, to to widen those choices or just make the choices choices that you like more um that's going to be a large coercive power that you must force upon everyone else yeah and it doesn't even have to be a useful thing like you said you know it's if you're wealthy it's because you did something really useful that's the beauty of it <clears throat> you can be an artist and you know i'm not saying art is useless all right people but my <laughs> point is is that there are things that have subjective value and so in a free market society I can say, hey, I provide this weirdo service, you know, this whatever thing. And if there's a market for it, if people want to spend money on it, that's my argument in favor of modern art. I hate modern art. <clears throat> I hate all of this stuff. 
But if there's a market for that, if, you know, women, you know, there's ones you'd make period blood paintings. I think that's insane, but people will buy those. That's the point. It's like in a free society where people can say, Hey, I have a, a thing and I'm going to throw it out there to the market and see if people want to buy it. <clears throat> if they do great, that's the, that's the point. And, and how all of this is all based on people's own subjective desires, their own subjective preferences, their own subjective things that cause them enjoyment and so on and so forth and their subjective interests and, and how they rank order value those things, right? You know, people buy those crazy healing crystals and stuff, you know, like all of these things. And that, but in a, in a society that has planners, it's like, well, you don't need that. I, because I don't think you need that. And I think that's dumb or whatever. So we're not going to have that. Um, and so the, the point is, is you, the way you get all of these crazy niche things um, is in a society where people are free to decide um, what they what they want and what they don't want and it's not a secondary concern like you said it's not some tiny you know off the side issue it really is as belloc said it's it's all of human life fil filters through this one thing yeah so i mean we added another note here that really pounds this idea home but but really it's the ability to exchange goods and services for capital or money allows us to choose what we want to spend that capital on by changing out free capital with non-economic compensation, i.e. like power, position, and other public benefits, you're now limited to what those planners give you. Free, cap free capital gives you choice. Non-economic incentives do not, which, which is why Hayek goes on to say, it would be much truer to say that money is one of the greatest instruments of freedom ever invented by man. If you destroy that instrument, you're going to take away that freedom. Those things are interlocked with each other. And there's a great quote at the end that says, you know, this is a prerequisite to a lot of different things. If you don't have this freedom, you don't allow people to have uh, this type of freedoms, all, all kinds of freedoms that will go along the wayside with it. Because as we, you know, explain now, all this stuff's interlocked together. Yeah. And, you know, an example of that, you know, that we talked about last night before getting super drowsy um, was, you know, if I'm, so whenever I was a kid, uh, before I was old enough to actually get like an actual job, I would shovel people's sidewalks, <clears throat> um, you know, shovel snow on sidewalks. And so it's like, let's say I'm that kid and I'm, I'm wanting to get money to buy a bike. And so I'm going around and I'm shoveling sidewalks and for this agreed upon price. And I shovel this huge area. They have a big driveway or whatever. And I spend all this time on it. And then at the end they say, oh, actually, we're not going to give you money. Uh, we made you some cookies or here's some clothes, you know, or whatever thing, it's like, okay, but now I'm stuck with that one thing, right? How does that get me closer to my bike? And so what money does <clears throat> and having this system where we can determine the value of and things through this agreed upon currency, it makes it to where we can pursue our own ends. Whereas if you just get stuck with a system where your compensation for anything is, preset, is some preset thing by some higher power, a planner, they don't actually help you get to your to the things you value and also it doesn't it, it makes it where you're much more fragile in an area where it's like if i have to do this one thing to get shoes or to get electricity it's like if <clears throat> if that thing falls through i don't get shoes or electricity anymore you know or if i don't want to do that then i'm not going to get those things um as opposed to a system with money it's like i can do this and then i can spend it here 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 or if i lose a little bit of money here I can stop, you know, I can cancel my Netflix or whatever to make sure that I get these other things. Um, so it makes it where there's a lot more anti-fragility, anti I guess, in, well, your own personal life and also in how you pursue things um, as well. All right, I'm done, I'm done with the, the metaphors for now. Yeah. 
no, I mean, you get the point that um, it's, it's you that must uh, be able to take to make these choices. And, and toward the end, he talks about, you know, this type of freedom is a risk and responsibility. It really is. And that's why people are yeah. sort of afraid to take on this responsibility because it is intimidating, right? You don't like to fall behind on bills and say, oh, now I got to get rid of Netflix. I got to get rid of all these other things and, you know, shift my priorities somewhere else. Um, but in a planned society, you just don't get a choice in those priorities at all. Like if you really value yeah. Netflix, even though it's a, a commodity that you you don't need, no one needs Netflix, um, uh, except for the Obamas, but you, <laughs> like you, you can actually choose and what you need, what's important to you. So this next quote kind of dives into that a little bit as well. So quote, many people believe that anything which like economic planning affects only our economic interests cannot seriously inter interfere with the more basic values of life. This, however, is an erroneous conclusion. Economic values are less important to us than many things precisely because in economic matters, we are free to decide what to us is more and what is less important. Or as we might say, because that because in the present society, it is we who have to solve the economic problems in our lives. Just like you talked to there, if you have a, an economic problem arises, you get to shift your priorities to that problem and, and solve the problem yourself. Yep. The question raised by economic planning is therefore not merely whether we shall be able to satisfy what we regard as more or less important needs in the way we prefer. It is whether it shall be who it shall be we who decide that what is more and what is less important to us or whether this is to be decided by a central planner. Economic planning would not merely would not affect merely those of our marginal needs that we have in mind and we, and that we have in mind when we speak contemptuously about the mere merely economic. Oh, sorry. It would in effect mean that we as individuals shall no longer be allowed to decide what we regard as marginal. So I mean, just like you explained before, you you get to decide what is less important to you. And if you think that this thing that's super important to other people, you think like having a nice car, if you don't find that to be super important because you live in a city and it's like, why why have a nice car? I can bike. I'd rather have a decent bike, uh, have all these other amenities at home, a larger TV, all this type of stuff. Or you have a central planner who's like, well, we prioritize this type of tra transportation or the other way. It's like, I really want a car, but it's like, well, you know, it's global warming. So we're going to force you to have a bike and not a car. It's like, you yep. don't get to prioritize that. And how comfortable is it going to be if you allow that authority to go to some central uh, planner? Yeah. And that's exactly right. And this is one of the things. So he, this chapter, I think progresses really, really nicely. And I really like it. Um, because of that, and, and especially what he's getting into next, and then the thought after it. But so he goes from saying, look, economics is not just one little area, it's the, this entire area. <clears throat> and whenever that you have the government is in control of all of the means of production and all of the, the economy, like, <clears throat> I'm going to read that one part of the quote again, because it's, it's worth restating. The question raised by planning is therefore, not merely whether we shall have the ability to satisfy what we regard as less or more. So it's not just a question of, are we going to be able to obtain those things that we value, but whether or not it's us who even decides what is less or more important um, or whether it's decided by the planner. So it takes it one step further to where it's like, it's not merely do we, are, you know, hey, I, I want, uh, you know, whatever niche thing is, you know, okay, let's do the thing we talked about last night where, uh, you were talking about uh, the hockey teams in in America, and you said that there's some good teams like in Florida, and I think you said um, in, in Mexico City, not Mexico City, no. was it Mexico City? 
No. Oh, I, I use that an example. It's like you think Florida, you know, there's all these Canadian teams. You'd think the Canadian teams would be the good ones, but no, there's this Florida yep. team that's now in the championship. To me, that's like thinking that a Mexico City team would do really well oh, okay, at hockey, yeah. even though there's no possible way other than obviously indoor, which most hockey is, that they'd right. be able to practice. You know? And and the point is, is it's like under communism, there would be no Florida hockey team. Um, and so the and the question isn't, you know, whether or not we'll be we'll be able to you know, have our Florida hockey team get some kind of priority, but whether or not we'll even be able to have one period under planning, because we aren't the ones who even get to decide what's more or less important. We will be told what is more or less important um, by the planner because of they're the ones allocate, like allocating the resources. They're the ones allocating the goods and services. And we'll get to the services part here in a minute um, and how that impacts us and how Hayek takes it one step further yet again in terms of the totalitarian, as- a totalitarian aspect of this. Um, <clears throat> but this is the, the thing you guys have to key in here where it's like, I, you know, these quotes, it, it can get kind of clunky, but just think about this of like, look, if the government controls just one aspect of society, that's, that's something like the economy, they control everything. And that includes like, what is your subjective opinion of what's about val- more, more or less important. Um, you don't get to decide that they're going to tell you what's more or less important. Um, and they'll do that in a variety of me or in a variety of, <clears throat> of ways. Um, and that's kind of what the next part gets into here where it's in a free society. Like we should be able to choose what type of life we want to live. And, you know, if we want to be rich and work to produce a lot, then we can do that. If we want to have a life of free time and be less concerned about re- being rich, we can live accordingly. But the point is, is it's us who gets to decide. And so this is where Hayek moves from. So progression is Okay. Economics is not some small matter. It, to, it encompasses all of life, you know, so the production of goods and services, like all of these things, like the materials that are necessary to do things, all, everything we use the cow example that has, that impacts, you know, a very large majority of the population, just that one thing. So now you extrapolate that over the entire economic system, everything in the economic system, that's all of uh, our society. And then Hyatt gets into, well, wait a second, there's this other aspect of the economy, it's not just the things being produced, it's those who are producing it. What's that? That's us, right? That's us. We are part of the economy. Our labor is part of the economy. And so Hayek says it's, they aren't just going to control the things that are made, the widgets, but they're going to control the widget makers. They're going to control the labor, which is us. And that's one of the ways that this could like becomes so totalizing. Um, is because it's not just about the items, but it's about us. Um, so that, and that kind of gets us into that next part there. Yeah. When you talk about, uh, it's about us as, you know, consumers, it's kind of the Marx to uh, Marx philosophy of allowing the the people to own the fruits of their own labor by like government coercion. Like, do you actually own those fruits or now that a planner has come in, uh, you don't really own them. It's, it's whatever the planner dictates, what's important for you to use those resources as, um, you know, do you, do you even own those in reality? You actually don't own them. So uh, he continues out the quote, not only in our capacity as consumers, however, and not even mainly in that capacity would the will of the authority shape and guide our daily lives. It would do so even more in our position as producers. These two aspects of our lives cannot be separated. And as for, as for most of us in the time we speak at our, the time we spend at our work is in large part is a large part of our total lives. Uh, and as the job usually also determines the place and 
place where and the people among whom we live, some freedom in choosing our work, probably even more important than though, even more important for our happiness than freedom to spend our income during the hours of hours of leisure. So even this, the ability to produce and, and kind of choose your capacity in which you can produce is just as important, if not even more important than the way we spend our free time. He goes on to say, nothing makes conditions more unbearable than the knowledge that no effort of ours can change them. So it's like this, you know, if I fall, you know, behind on some project I'm working on, what feels worse about falling behind on that project is not even having the choice to start improving it, to start improving that, that area of my life. When a central planner comes in, they just say, no, you just can't. That's not something you're allowed to focus on right now. We're going to put our focuses here according to the plan. And that, that part is much more unbearable than, uh, you know, falling behind because of some, you know, exterior force that, you know, is forcing you to fall behind and you have no opportunity to, to correct that. And he goes on, Quote, and even if we should never have the strength of mind to make the necessary sacrifice, the knowledge that we could escape if we only strove hard enough makes any other makes many otherwise intolerable positions bearable. So, you know, like I just I said, it's it's your ability to choose is what makes that life bear, bearable. And even when he talks about before about, you know, the happiness and in, in, in choosing the way we uh, act as a producer is sometimes more important than we spend our lives. A lot of us have our identities kind of woven into what we do uh, as a profession or what we do as a job, or even what we do as a, a homemaker, you know, somebody spends more time with their yeah. kids. It's that choice that you get that kind of helps develop your own identity. And if you don't get that choice, if the central planner dictates what you get to do with your life as a producer, even as a, a homemaker, you, you now are, are absent of any sort of identity that can be uh, pulled in from that. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And one of the the important, one of the really I think fundamental aspects there is in just how this ties into freedom or, or lack of freedom. Um, as he says, look, you know, uh, <clears throat> what you do often might determine where you know where you live, and where you live determines your social network. You know, or let's say you you grow up in a place that you like where you live and you like the people that you live around. And so you want to get a job there so that you can stay in that area and planning removes all agency from that. And it creates this situation where he doesn't use the word hopeless. Um, but the, it creates this hopeless situation where it's like, you have no freedom to choose, you know, what kind of work you want to do. And, you know, consequently where you're going to live, who you're going to be around. I mean, you spend so much time with your coworkers, uh, you know, that, that that's a big deal. I mean, just as one small example of this, of course, this is not something that's super accessible to most people, but you know, the movie 50 first dates, the Adam Sandler film was filmed in Hawaii just because Sandler wanted to film a movie in Hawaii. It wasn't integral to the plot. He was like, I think it'd be fun to, if we're going to shoot and we're going to be on location somewhere, let's do it in Hawaii. Why not? Let's just have a big vacation. We'll just make the script work for that. So like, that's you know one thing there. There's, a, I read an article the other day about how these people who have all these jobs that they can do from home now are traveling all over the place, you know, and how, of course, this is something about the environment and how they're leaving all this trash behind or something, whatever. Uh, but the point is, is that if you choose your, your vocation, you can choose your location, your quality of life, and all these other things, planning removes all of that. So we've went from, can I actually buy a hamburger or get leather when I want to, can I work doing what I want to do? to can I live where I want to live and be around the people that I want to be around and it just is so much control in this one area and, and you know it's like the idea that you can escape from a situation even if even if you don't think you would personally have the discipline or will to do it 
you know, Hayek is saying that like that still makes these things bearable because there's that part of your mind of like, I could get out if I wanted to. Whereas you take something, I mean, again, I feel like I quote Yanmi Park now, like in every single one of these, but, you know, she said North Korea is basically a concentration camp. There is, you know, little hope of escape. It's, it's just totally hopeless. Um, and people do kill themselves. Um, but even in that situation, if they kill themselves, their family has to take over their debt, you know, and take over their workload and stuff. And so it's just this, there's no happiness. There's no love there, but that's the situation that this system creates. Um, and it's, it is really, if you think about it, like just take a second to think about what that'd be like of someone tells you where you have to move to, what job you have to do, um, who you have to be around when you have to work. Um, I mean, that's, and, and their own also, there's no escape outside of, you know, bullet to the back of the head. Um, man, that's, that's hell. That's torture. You know, but that's where this goes. Yeah, I think if you have a, a full planned economy, I mean, it has to run in some capacity like a labor camp. Um, yep. There's just no other way around it. That's how we understand how to run, you know, a big coercive. Uh, the, the important word here is coercive because it's not like working for Amazon where you get a choice uh, and you get like, all right, if I'm not getting paid enough, I'm going to leave. If I don't like the working conditions, I can leave. Um, that's not how a planned economy would work. It's like, where, where are you going to leave? Yep. You're going to move to Canada? I'd rather work in a planned economy. I'm just saying, but no, um, I, I, it, it's just like an inescapable um, factory effectively. You know, it's the whole country is this factory and um, you know, you, you, you only have limited power, limited freedom within that factory uh, because there's no free exchange there. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, and again, it, it becomes like a factory in that not just the widgets are being made, but we are the widgets also, you know, we're the interchangeable units as the, as the next quote. I think you're um, describing China points out. That's, that's exactly right. And you're talking about their economy, not a racial stereotype, right? Yes. <laughs> I know. I'm just messing with you. Um, so he goes on, he says, uh, the freedom of choice would be purely fictitious, a mere promise to practice no discrimination, where in the nature of the case, discrimination must be practiced. And where all one could hope would be that the selection be made on what the authority believed to be the objective grounds. So your best hope is that the people who are making this decision for you are being somewhat objective. Um, again, not your best hope is freedom. Your best hope is in the benevolence of the planner. We shall no longer be free to be rational or efficient only when and where we think it worthwhile. We shall all have to conform to the standards which the planning authority must fix in order to simplify the task. To make this immense task manageable, it will have to reduce the diversity of human capacities and inclinations to a few categories of readily interchangeable units and deliberately to disregard minor personal preferences. Although the professed aim of planning would be that a man should cease to be a mere means, in fact, since it would be impossible to take account in the plan all of individuals' likes and dislikes, the individual would be more than ever become a mere means to be used by the authority in the service of such abstractions as the social welfare or the social good. And so, like, I really like this quote in the middle here where he says, um, we would no longer be free to be rational or efficient only when and where we think it to be worthwhile. And he gets into, the, you know, this idea of people who want to work more and work less. And that rational and efficient when we're, uh, it, we think it's worthwhile gets into that idea at the end about, you know, the, um, the, the risk and reward of, of life. The point is, is that like 
people can be more ambitious and take risks or be less ambitious. And there's a different set of risks that accompany that. Um, but ultimately we have the freedom to choose that. If someone, you know, I give the example of the two hitchhikers I picked up, you know, he's her road dog and they're passing the Mountain Dew back and forth and they've got the patchwork clothes. They wanted to do that. That's fine. Like to the extent that it doesn't mess with other people, you know, but that's fine with me. And the point is, is that in a planned society, people can do that or they can be on the way opposite end and be Richard Branson and go to the moon or not go to the moon, but go to space, you know? And so, um, well, probably eventually the moon, but anyway, the, the point is, is that that's how that works in a free society. Whereas the planning would turn us all into these interchangeable units. And, and just a quick aside, how do you make a unit interchangeable? How do you universalize it? Well, you have to make it conform to a set standard. And if they're doing this across the human spectrum of capacities, you're going to, is that going to be a high standard or a low standard? It's going to be a pretty low standard because in order to make people interchangeable, you have to account for the fact that like a super smart person can be a janitor, but a janitor, you know, in most cases probably isn't going to be a chemical engineer if someone just sticks them in the room. Right. And so the point is, is that like we've mentioned before, whenever you universalize these things, it lowers the standard, it lowers the quality, it lowers the capacity for doing things um, because you have to do that in order because the reason why he says readily interchangeable is because it the system is so arbitrary and how the planner is going to decide things is they have to be able to take you know 20 people from here and put them over here you know at the drop of a hat because they decide it's necessary and the only way you do that is by having this like very low res you know kind of system of things that provides for only the most basic of items and only the most basic of of things that you know increase your quality of life you're not going to get well hockey teams in florida or you know fine art or any or you know like a wide array of music and innovation because you need the people to be doing you know these other things yeah yeah i think your um your janitor comments you've clearly never watched goodwill hunting um but you know we'll let that slide uh fair enough (laughs) fair enough to me uh, uh, yeah to me when you read that last paragraph you know it reminds me of most like dystopian novels or books um even some like historical fiction or historical nonfiction uh, books where everyone's assigned a job rather than choosing from all possible jobs available to them. And, and that conform to their skill set in a free living society. Um, this would be the, the inevitable practice of planning is to be able to uh, even, you know, if there's a little bit of wiggle room to say, all right, we're going to make you take some sort of IQ test. Now you're available to these jobs, these jobs, these, uh, you know, what yep. if, uh, you know, even if a brilliant person, yeah, wants to be a janitor because they want more leisurely time. It's like they don't want to sure. spend their time, you know, applying it in the field of chemical engineering. They want to, uh, you know, make enough money to get by and then spend their time in, you know, philosopher or something like that. Um, yep. So, you know, depriving people of that choice is really um, where totalitarianism steps in because now you're dictating uh, via course of authority. Yeah. And I mean, that's what Hayek says there at the end of the, the quote where it's like people will become mere means in the name of the social welfare the good of the community and it's like that's what you see in these propaganda posters like in the soviet union and also you know in these movies where it's like you know i i watched a really good review of um oh gosh uh starship troopers 
and how like the use of propaganda in that. And, you know, we see this this thing here about rallying people and making them cogs in the machine, you know, as in the name of these abstractions like social welfare and the good of the community. I mean, we see that even today. You know, look at the conversation about masks and vaccines right now where it's like, you know, you we need to make life hard for people who are unvaccinated. Um, and all of these, every single article I read whenever there is new Q&As about mask mandates, um, it includes questions like, you know, what if I want to wear a mask to show people I'm a good person? You know, or what if I, there was one that I just, this is maybe two or three days ago on CNN where it was like, well, if I don't wear a mask, what if people think I'm unvaccinated? You know, I don't want people to think I'm unvaccinated. It's like, why would they think you're unvaccinated if you're, if you're not wearing a, you know, a mask? That, isn't that the idea is that you're vaccinated so you don't have to wear that? And so like we, it's, there's all these abstractions, you know, for the social welfare and the good of the community. Uh, and those words are used on purpose. One, because it's like, they're just, they're claiming the moral high ground. Two, there's nothing, you know, distinct in there you know, for you to say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, or how are we doing with that? There's, there's no guardrails on it. And two, if anyone opposes it, now what happens? Well, you're, you're opposed to the social welfare. You don't care about the good of the community and you can rally people's neighbors against them. You know, sound familiar. Whenever we get these authoritarian, um, authoritarian lines and a super dystopian kind of uh, rhetoric and propaganda, you know, and the, that note there on like in these, movies where people were assigned these tasks and assigned their these jobs like that makes me think and i've been thinking about this a lot is like why is it that most sci-fi or anything you know book movie tv show whatever comic that envisions the future envisions it as being this type of society right like the ones that don't are usually because of some catastrophic event where like no one's in charge of anything. Hmm. Um, but the ones that do like envision a somewhat organized society, like an actual society in the future, it's like Star Trek where it's like this federation that's, so, you know, socialist basically, you know, that, that controls all of these things. All the countries get, you know, to get together to form this kind of one world government. Um, and you see this across the board in all of these things where they picture this kind of top-down control of things. And, it, and it's, it's scary to me because of the overlaps between, okay, fiction, all of these futurists envision the future this way. Uh, the present, that in terms of this rhetoric and this propaganda, you know, hey, get on board, the common good, right? Um, and how that's using being used to divide us. You know, you're seeing that, uh, I think it was the CDC said uh, – you know, when school starts back up again, I think things are going to get crazy when school starts back up again. Um, the, it's the vaccinated students and teachers don't have to wear masks, according to the CDC. So well, what does that do? It's like, oh, well, what about the unvaccinated? What about an unvaccinated eight-year-old? Why would it have an eight-year-old even be vaccinated in the first place, right? Why would mm -hmm. a teacher who is 19, or not 19, but who is like 23 need to get vaccinated? Um, and so it's it's all of this stuff and how that kind of overlaps with, the, the propaganda crap of the past that we've seen in these places that actually became totalitarian and with how all of these writers and futurists envision the future of society. And there's just too much of a concentric circle there. You know, like we're in the middle of that Venn diagram right now of mm -hmm. the past, you know, hellscape and the future dystopian, you know, fiction. Our current moment is the middle of that Venn diagram um, in a lot of ways. And so 
anyway, it just scares the hell out of me. You know, I know that's a bit of an aside, but I thought it was at least worth thinking about for a second. I mean, I don't know what you think about that. If, if that, yeah. there's something, I mean, there's nothing I, there, but I wish I could just say it's lazy writing. Um, but there's a point there. <laughs> there's a point that, yeah. that everyone takes this, uh, idealistic future i mean it's in some ways you know there's some you know books that i can't think off the top of my head where it becomes part of the story you're like being assigned to something becomes part of the story but normally like in that version there's like okay if you don't meet certain standards they're just gonna euthanize you or something like that the giver um, yeah the yeah, giver yeah um so uh you know it is scary that we kind of envision this is almost an inevitable future and i think that's kind of what the planning you know what we've talked about in previous chapters i think there's one literally called the inevitability of planning right so it is as soon as these societies get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that will get ramped up. The idea will get ramped up if we ever go to a world government, right? Because then that'll, you know, be infinitely larger than we have now. Um, the idea of planning and needing to plan all these things for the common good, which is this Orwellian term, if you, you would ever think about it, um, is, planner, is scary. Basically. Right, exactly. It's like, well, a common good, you know, you got to come up with a hierarchy of ends, you know, social scale values. And when you get into that, you quickly find out it's like, okay, my, my voice to it doesn't matter anymore. Um, yep. So, you know, it's a scary, scary future that we could uh, be maneuvering into uh, pretty quickly. Uh, so uh, unless you got anything else, I'm going to go into the next, when Hayek talks about the idea of an economic problem. Um, so uh, this problem involves making a choice to, to quote, sacrifice our lesser needs in order to preserve the higher values that life and health, beauty and virtue, honor and peace of mind can often be preserved only at considerable cost and that somebody must make the choice is, an, is as undeniable as that we are all sometimes not prepared to make the material sacrifices necessary to protect those higher values against all injury. He actually uses a quick example of here. It's like the best way to uh, not have as many car accidents is to eliminate cars. It's like, okay, well that's, yep. that's the best way to solve that problem. And then I always kind of translate that to the best way to get rid of a pandemic is to all stay in our houses and, and wear yep. masks, even though they're not necessarily get vaccinated. So, you know, there's that always that threat of injury and, and the, the planners say, well, let's take the threat away. Like we don't want you to get hurt. So we'll just plan all this stuff for you and, and take the, the choice away from you.